John Austin IV liked to spend money, and he was in a good position to do so. His father, John Austin III, had achieved great financial success as a clothier and provided a comfortable life for his family. When the younger John was married, he moved into the family home at Broadford and expected to receive a great inheritance when his father died. Because of this promise of future fortunes, he lived far beyond his means. He had no problem taking on debt because he was confident that someday he would be able to pay it all back. Unfortunately, in 1704, things went awry for John Jr. He died, but his father was still alive, which means he never inherited anything. His wife, Elizabeth Weller, hadn't known about his debt, but after his death, she was left to foot the bill. With her husband now gone, the inheritance from her father-in-law passed to other branches of the family. So the widow Elizabeth now had seven children to care for, debt collectors knocking on her door, and nowhere to turn for financial assistance. Well, as women are wont to do, she rose to the challenge. A renter was found for the Broadford house, belongings were sold to cover the debts, and Elizabeth took a position as a housekeeper at a grammar school. She and her children moved into a home we can assume was much more humble than what they were used to, but working at the grammar school meant her boys were able to attend for free. This was very important to her. She said, It seemed to me as if I could not do a better thing for my children's good, their education being my great care. For I always thought, if they had learning, they might get better shift in the world. She married into this well-to-do family, thinking that her children would be well provided for, and everything would just be peaches and cream for the rest of her life. But when she realized how little would be left to them after her husband's death, she gave them the best thing she could think of, an education. And she was right. It opened up great opportunities to them. Her children became attorneys, surgeons, tradesmen. Her daughter married a lawyer. And not only did she give them the leg up to be successful in life, she taught them the value of a good education, something that they then passed on to their own children. This was her legacy in the Austin family, and it certainly played an important role in the life of her great-granddaughter, Jane. This is the Jane Austen Podcast. I'm your host, Becky, and today we're talking about baby Jane. Welcome back. Today we're going to be talking a bit about Jane Austen's family and about her childhood at Steventon. But first, before we start getting into who's who, I want to talk for a minute about names. If you've read three or four of Jane's novels, you probably noticed that she reuses names quite a bit. She uses the name Jane for two significant characters out of six novels. When I noticed this, I thought, what, were there only 20 names to choose from back then? And of course, the answer is no, but but kind of. Today, we are obsessed with giving our children unique names. But back then, it was family names that were a big part of their cultural tradition. One son or daughter in a family would often be named after their parents. So family trees were very repetitive from one generation to the next. Hence, John the Third and Fourth that I just talked about. The other children would likely be named after relatives, sometimes for a particularly beloved person, but more often parents would honor a wealthy or well-connected relative by naming their child after them. I guarantee you, Mr. Collins from Pride and Prejudice named his first daughter Catherine after his esteemed patroness. This was a way to win favor with someone who might help that child out someday. If you have 15 nieces and nephews, 
the one named after you might become a particular favorite and receive favors or maybe even some inheritance. You can imagine if there are five siblings and they all want to name a child after their one wealthy Uncle George and every family is doing this, there's just not going to be a lot of diversity as far as names go. So as we talk about the Austin family, I will try to be very clear about who I am talking about, but be prepared for a lot of Janes, Edwards, Henrys, and so on. All right. I don't want to go too far back, but I want to talk about the Austin clothiers a bit more. This is what John Austin I and his son Francis did. Back then, a clothier would provide the materials for cloth to be made and then would facilitate selling the cloth to merchants. This might sound like a low-class occupation, but it's a big part of the reason Jane's family belonged to the social class that they did. In his book, The History and Topographical Survey of the County of Kent, Edward Hasted says, The clothing business was exercised by persons who possessed most of the landed property in the weald, insomuch that almost all the ancient families of these parts are sprung from ancestors who have used this great staple manufacture. And then he goes on to talk about these families, including the Austins, were a body so numerous and united that at county elections, whoever had their vote and interest was almost certain of being elected. So even though Jane's parents were never wealthy, they benefited from this prestige of their ancestors. John Austin I built enough wealth and acquired enough land to keep the family in a position of privilege. Now let's go back to Elizabeth and John IV's children. Their oldest son, John V, actually inherited quite a bit from his grandfather once he came of age at the neglect of his siblings, and this caused a great rift in the family, so he and his descendants were not part of Jane's life. Elizabeth's second son, Francis, was a key figure, however. This is Jane's great-uncle now, and he lived until 1791, so he knew her for most of her childhood. He finished school and became an attorney in Seven Oaks. He did well and used his money to buy up land, which is very important because it kept the family in the class of the landed gentry. In his late 40s, he married a wealthy woman named Anne Motley. Sadly, less than a year after they were married, she died after giving birth to a son named Francis Motley. Eleven years later, he remarried a widow who had, with his help as an attorney, retained her late husband's fortune. So Francis Austin did very well for himself, and then he married very well. So he's now set up as this patriarchal figure in the family because he has the money, he has the land, he has the connections, and the oldest brother is really out of the picture. Francis's younger brother, William, married a widow named Rebecca Hampson, and she had a son named William Hampson from her first husband, who was also named William. William Austin and Rebecca went on to have four children, a daughter named Hampson, who only lived for a couple of years, a daughter, Philadelphia, George, and then another daughter, Leonora. Their son, George, is Jane Austen's father, and he had a very hard childhood. After Leonora's birth in 1732, Rebecca passed away. It was a hard time for mothers and babies back then. This was the beginning of a series of tragedies for George Austen and his sisters. I'm going to quote from Deirdre Le Fay's A Family Record here to explain what happened next. In 1735, William Austin made his will by which he left his property in trust to his brothers Francis and Stephen for them to use as they saw fit upon the education of his three children. The following year, he married again, his second wife being Susanna Kelk of Tonbridge. But unfortunately, perhaps with a touch of his father's carelessness, he did not bother to alter his will to take account of the second marriage. 
When he died 18 months later, Susanna Kelk was therefore under no legal obligation to care for her stepchildren, and apparently felt no moral obligation either. She lived on for another 31 years, occupying William's house in Tonbridge, but played no part at all in rearing her husband's children, nor in turn did she mention them in her will. She just sounds like a really lovely woman, right? So George is now orphaned and cast out by his stepmother. He and his sisters went to live with their uncle Stephen, who was not good to them. He could be harsh and cruel, and these children were three, four, and five when they went to live with him. They were so young. Fortunately, four years later, George left Stephen's home and moved in with his aunt Betty and her lawyer husband, George Hooper. Betty was Elizabeth and John IV's daughter, and it seems that things were much better for him there. This change came because he began attending Tonbridge School. Remember, this is a family that believes in the power of education, and so George worked very hard to distinguish himself in school. His circumstances so closely reflect that of his father and uncles. He's an orphan with no money, no future promised to him. His education is his only chance to make something of himself in the world. So with his mind set on a position in the church, he worked very hard in school. He ended up going to St. John's College at Oxford, where he received his Bachelor and then Master of Arts degrees. Several years later, he became the assistant chaplain of the college, continued to go to school, and ultimately received his Bachelor's of Divinity, which meant that he could become a rector. And as Mr. Collins would tell us, it is very important for a good rector to set the example for his parish by getting married. And so, now in his early 30s, George Austin set out to find a suitable bride. Let's go back in time a bit here, and I will introduce you to the maternal side of Jane's family. Let's start with Theophilus Lee. He was descended from a Sir Thomas Lee who had been the Lord Mayor of London. He was a distant cousin to another Sir Thomas Lee who had been made a baron. Theophilus had 12 children, but don't worry, we're only going to talk about one of them. He was married to Mary Bridges, who was the sister of the Duke of Chandos, another prestigious member of the family. The Duke was married to a woman named Cassandra. They had married pretty late in life. She was in her early 40s. He already had sons from his first wife, so he didn't need to marry a young wife who could give him children, just a good woman who could help care for the children he already had. And Cassandra was a loving caregiver. She had spent years tending to her nieces and nephews before she married. She was a very neat woman. If you're interested, you can actually find a book of her letters and other preserved writings called Cassandra Bridges' Life and Letters. But she was kind, lovely, and a gifted artist, and now she was married to a duke. So, of course, Theophilus and Mary named a daughter after her. And the name Cassandra can be found dotting the Lee and Austin pedigrees for generations afterwards. Cassandra and the Duke were very good to Theophilus and Mary's children. He made sure that his nieces were educated, everyone got a little bit of money. Despite having sons of his own, he gave a lot of attention to his sister's children. One of those children was another Thomas Lee. I'll refer to him as the Reverend Thomas Lee. This is Jane's grandfather. He and his wife, Jane Walker, had six children. Two of them died in infancy, and a third was born with some kind of handicap and was sent away to be cared for by another family for his whole life. The remaining three children were James, Jane, and Cassandra. The Reverend and his wife were lovely people, highly thought of in their neighborhood, and provided a good home for the bright and charming Cassandra and her siblings. Also in the home was Jane Walker's aunt, Anne Perot. She taught her great-nieces and nephew and must have cared for them very much because when her wealthy, childless brother said, Anne, I'm leaving you everything, she turned him down. 
His lands and money would have made her very comfortable in her old age, but she was looking to the future, and she told him to leave his inheritance to their great-nephew James instead. All she asked for was a little bit of money every year to take care of herself, as well as a little bit for Cassandra and Jane, but the rest of his money and land went to Cassandra's brother James. And this brings us to the first of a number of surname changes. When the time came for James to inherit, he had to change his name to the hyphenated James Lee Perot, which is frankly a small price to pay for a fortune. He married another woman named Jane in 1744, and although they never had children, we have every reason to believe they were very happy together, and they were very involved in the lives of their nieces and nephews. James's sister, Jane, married the Reverend Dr. Edward Cooper, so I will refer to her as Jane Cooper going forward. Then, in April of 1764, Cassandra Lee married George Austin. We really don't know much about their courtship. There are no letters or preserved journals to turn to for details, but we do know that they were both practical young people and seemed to make a very effective partnership. One story we know about them is that she decided not to buy wedding clothes. She just got married in her red riding outfit because I'm sure the idea of spending money on wedding clothes just seemed frivolous when she was going to enter into this marriage where there wasn't going to be a lot of money. Whether there was love between them or not is impossible to say, but it seems like they were very happy. George had been fortunate enough to land not one parish position, but two. The husband of a second cousin, Thomas Knight, had offered him a position in Steventon, and then George's uncle Francis, remember the attorney, bought the parish at Dean, which was just a couple miles away, so George was able to attend to both. After their marriage, they lived first at the Dean Rectory, which was apparently the better of the two, but it is described as small, inconvenient, and damp. So they got off to a great start. It was there that the first three Austin children were born, James, George, and Edward. They then moved down the road to Steventon. Jane's nephew, James Edward, writes in his memoir, Mrs. Austin, who was not then in strong health, performed the short journey on a feather bed, placed upon some soft articles of furniture in the wagon, which held their household goods. That's quite a thing to picture, isn't it? Hey, here's the rector's wife riding through town on her mattress. Uh, James Edward goes on to describe Steventon and the home that they took up there, a home he was very familiar with because he was raised there as well when Jane's brother took over the rectory. He says, Steventon is a small rural village upon the chalk hills of North Hants, situated in a winding valley. It is certainly not a picturesque country. It presents no grand or extensive views, but the features are small rather than plain. The surface continually swells and sinks, but the hills are not bold, nor the valleys deep. And though it is sufficiently well clothed with woods and hedgerows, yet the poverty of the soil in most places prevents the timber from attaining a large size. Still, it has its beauties. The lanes wind along in a natural curve, continually fringed with irregular borders of native turf, and lead to pleasant nooks and corners. Speaking of the house, he goes on to say, It was sufficiently commodious to hold pupils in addition to a growing family, and was in those times considered to be above the average of parsonages. But the rooms were finished with less elegance than would now be found in the most ordinary of dwellings. No cornice marked the junction of wall and ceiling, while the beams which supported the upper floors projected into the rooms below in all their naked simplicity, covered only by a coat of paint or whitewash. It was nothing fancy, but they were happy there. Reverend Austin took in pupils for a little extra income. They were close with the families of the parish, 
and letters from the Reverend and Mrs. Austin show that they frequently visited with their siblings. They had animals and a garden. Life was good. There's a sweet letter from Mrs. Austin to her sister-in-law, the wife of Reverend Austin's half-brother, in which she's trying to convince her to come visit with their children, and she says, I have got a nice dairy fitted up, and am now worth a bull and six cows. And here I have got jackies and ducks and chicken for Philly's amusement. In short, you must come, and like Hezekiah, I will shew you all my riches. That really seems to be the way that Cassandra was. She just was very happy in her circumstances there. They had three more children, Henry, Cassandra, and Francis, who was called Frank. And then finally, Jane joined the family. Lucky number seven. Mrs. Austin was prepared to have a baby in November of 1775, but in a letter to his sister-in-law dated December 17th, the Reverend writes, You have doubtless been for some time in expectation of hearing from Hampshire, and perhaps wondered a little bit. We were in our old age grown such bad reckoners, but so it was, for Cassie certainly expected to have been brought to bed a month ago. However, last night the time came, and without a great deal of warning, everything was soon happily over. We have now another girl, a present plaything for her sister Cassie, and a future companion. Jane spent a few months at home being nursed by her mother, and then, as they did with all of their children, the Reverend and Mrs. Austin sent Jane away to live with a nurse out in the village. They did this with all their kids. They would send them after a few months of breastfeeding, and they would live in the village with somebody else until they were able to walk and maybe even talk. A letter from Mrs. Austin records one of Jane's brothers coming home at almost a year and a half, and they would go visit the babies every day. Sometimes their babies would come and stay with them for the day, but they really lived somewhere else. This seems like a crazy tradition, and it was falling out of style, but the Austins kept it up. And maybe it was just helpful to them. They had pupils, they had all these children, they had this house to take care of and the animals. Maybe they felt like their babies got more attention if they sent them out somewhere else. We know that parenting books from the time were starting to speak out against this and express concern that this would impact the mother and child bond but the Austins seemed like a very close family, so I don't think any damage was done here. And I have to wonder, looking at the birth practices back then, women would have a lying in. Before they had the baby, they would just stay in a room, usually with windows closed, and just try and keep it dark and just keep them in one place. And then after the baby would be born, they would have to stay in that room for sometimes several weeks. And so I just wonder if there was rampant postpartum depression, and maybe this practice helped the mothers to recover from that. But who knows? It's really easy to put our 2021 perspective on these things. I'm just grateful that it's not something that we do anymore. When Jane was deemed the appropriate age, she returned home, and it seems her sister Cassandra, two years her senior, became a kind of caregiver for her, and the two of them forged a very powerful bond. When their youngest brother Charles was born three and a half years later, he was like their little baby doll, and they had a very tender affection for him their whole lives. We will get to know Jane's siblings better in a future episode, but for now, just know that they were all very close. There's almost an 11-year gap between Jane and her oldest brother, James. So from a very young age, she had brothers already leaving home well into their educations. James left for St. John's College in Oxford when he was 14, and this turned out to be a great boon for Jane. 
He was a gifted writer and poet, very interested in literature, and he took it upon himself to teach her what he knew. We'll never know if his interest in teaching her was because he recognized some natural talent or if it sparked something in her that inspired her love of reading and writing. But I think we can assume this passing on of knowledge helped to improve her talents and to strengthen the bond between them. The Reverend Austin also aided her education, not only by teaching her himself, but because of his large library, consisting of about 500 books. That seems like a lot even by today's standards. So she was raised in this home where education is tied into the family's value system. She watched her father teaching these pupils who would come live with them. There's books everywhere that she's encouraged to read. Her siblings took an interest in sharing literature with her. We just see the soil being fertilized for a great writer to grow here. The family also really enjoyed plays, and when James would come home from school, they would turn the barn into a stage where they could act out scenes or whole plays, usually plays written by others, but they would sometimes write their own or add prologues and epilogues. Some of Jane's earliest preserved writings are clever little one-act plays. This was a very literate family, and she wanted to be part of it. I would also say her position as the second youngest afforded her a lot of opportunities. I see this in my own kids, that my youngest is just so much more capable and independent than my older kids because she wants so badly to do what they are doing. She really stretches herself trying to follow their example. It's likely Jane was the same way. There were big people in her home doing clever grown-up things, and she probably wanted to be like them. Speaking from experience, I can also say I'm one of seven kids. It's possible there was a competitive component to her success as well. Her brothers were great writers, but she wasn't going to be outdone by them. I can relate to that. So this desire to be like her older siblings, or at least like her older sister, is the reason Jane ended up being sent away to school at the age of seven. This was very much in opposition to cultural norms. Boys were sent away to school. Girls were educated at home. In the Austin house, however, the boys didn't go away to school until they were older, and it was Cassandra and Jane who were boarded out. This is strange since their father was a teacher. He was perfectly capable of giving them an excellent education. However, it's suspected by many that the girls could be sent away for less money than their father could bring in if he used their room to board his pupils. Like so many things in their life, this decision seems to be financially motivated. However, the Reverend and Mrs. Austin claimed they weren't planning on sending young Jane away. Jane's niece Anna remembers her grandmother, Jane's mother, telling her, Jane was too young to make her going to school at all necessary, but it was her own doing. She would go with Cassandra. And she quotes her grandmother as saying, If Cassandra's head had been going to be cut off, Jane would have had hers cut off too. So, upon her insistence, Jane accompanied Cassandra to what was called a dame school in Oxford, taught by a Mrs. Colley. Their cousin, Jane Cooper, also went with them, and thank goodness she did. While they were away at school, there was an outbreak of measles in Oxford, so their teacher decided they should uproot and move the operation to Southampton. But they weren't there long before the girls came down with what was likely typhus. This is a nasty disease. On top of typical symptoms like throwing up and headaches, it can cause confusion, comas, and back then could have been a death sentence for any of these three girls. For unknown reasons, Mrs. Colley did not tell the girls' parents what was happening. Maybe she wanted the girls to be recovered before their parents found out. Who knows? But when Jane Cooper finally revealed in a letter to her mother what was happening, Mrs. Cooper and Mrs. Austin hurried to Southampton to retrieve their sick daughters. 
It took months for Jane to fully recover, probably the same for her sister and cousin. And tragically, her aunt, Mrs. Cooper, caught the sickness from them and passed away. Despite all of this, a year after they returned home, they were sent away again. They now attended the Abbey School in Reading and were taught by a Mrs. La Tournelle. That sounds very promising, right? Who better to teach your daughter's French than Mrs. La Tournelle? Well, it was meant to sound good. The woman's real name was Sarah Hackett. Another pupil described her as a person of the old school, a stout person, hardly under 70, but very active, although she had a cork leg. She actually couldn't speak any French, but there were other French-speaking teachers brought in to help with that. I am sure the Abbey School was closer to what Catherine Moreland hoped Northanger Abbey would be than it actually was. There were gardens for wandering, ruins, arches. It's a beautiful building. I will post some pictures on Facebook and Instagram. And there was a very relaxed attitude at the school. It was very important to Mrs. Latournell that she get her afternoon nap. So after lunch, the girls were excused to do whatever they wanted. Another pupil said of her experience, The liberty which the first class had was so great that if we attended our tutor in his study for an hour or two every morning, no human being ever took the trouble to inquire where else we spent the rest of the day between our meals. Thus, whether we gossiped in one turret or another, whether we lounged about the garden or out of the window above the gateway, no one so much as said, Where have you been, mademoiselle? This freedom was a great blessing to Jane and Cassandra. The girls were able to even go visit with their brother and cousin, Edward Austin and Edward Cooper. It sounds like a magical time, and the interactions Jane watched between these young girls of a certain social class were probably a more prudent education than the one she received from her teachers. In her novels, the dialogue and realistic characters are so masterfully written. We know that comes from the way Jane carefully observed the people around her. The girls were only at the school for a year before they returned home. Jane was now nearly 11 and Cassandra was 13. They were not sent away again and enjoyed the freedom of a home education. Jane soon began to write. Her brothers were going off on different adventures, traveling far and wide, and letters and visits from them would teach her all kinds of things she would someday use in her novels. Her father's pupils came and went. Her brothers began to marry and settle down. But for the next 14 years, Jane stayed in Steventon with Cassandra and her parents, living a quiet country life. Jane Austen did not do a lot of interesting things. She was just fortunate to be surrounded by interesting people. Next time, we will get to know some of those people better as we talk about the lives of her six brothers. Which brother was Jane's favorite? Which brother did Jane's nephew leave out of the memoir? And which brother rose to the highest rank in the Royal Navy? All these answers and more, you won't want to miss it, so hit the subscribe button to be notified when the next episode comes out. You can follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Jane Austen Podcast or the Jane Austen Podcast page on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening and go have a lovely day.